0: Thanks to ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode and the smartest way to hire. The ground is always shifting in the tech world. A constant barrage of new programs, platforms, competitors, and regulations make running a tech company a wild ride. So you need a fast way to find people with the skills to keep up. There's no better way than ZipRecruiter. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at Recode. You may know me as someone who is always uncensored, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Adam Fisher. He's the author of a new oral history book called Valley of Genius... The Uncensored History of Silicon Valley, as told to me by the hackers, founders, and freaks who made it boom. He's also written for Wired, MIT Technology Review, and The New York Times Magazine. Adam, welcome to Recode Decode.
1: Thank you. You've
0: been working on this for a while. You contacted me how long ago?
1: Five years ago. Five years
0: ago, right. I thought that. I was like, oh, he's back. Um, So why don't you talk a little bit about your background and then how you decided to do this?
1: So, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I grew up as a total geek. Right. I played a lot of D&D. I programmed That's computers. Dungeons and Dragons for
0: normal people. Go
1: yes. I, I programmed computers, you know, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. I actually went to the first ever computer camp, went back when there was only one. Okay. And it was the first year. Yeah. And— um, where'd, you, where'd you go to school? I went to school at Menlo.
0: Menlo, so the, the heart of the beast. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, electronics classes sure. and programming for fun, the whole the oh, yeah. whole thing.
0: Yeah, okay. So here you were.
1: And somehow I took—I uh, was also a bookworm. And mm-hmm. so uh, somehow I took a left turn and because I w- decided I wanted to be a writer and a right. writer of mistake. books. Mistake.
0: That's your first mistake. It was mistake. a big
1: mistake Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways. But, I, you know, I ended up in New York City right after mm-hmm. I graduated and was really— You know, just worked my way up through the kind of now collapsed magazine, you know, journalism system. You worked your way to
0: the bottom. Yeah, Yeah. I
1: worked my way to the bottom. Right. But I was really trained as as a journalist, you know, New York Times, Esquire. Sure. And uh, ended up really uh, at Wired Mm -hmm. back in the kind of web boom and bust.
0: Right. What was your most famous article?
1: Oh, my God.
0: Come on. You have one. Everybody has one.
1: Well, uh, you know, it was a story that I wrote um, for the New York Times Magazine that mm-hmm. kind of unexpectedly, at least to me, landed on the cover. Mm-hmm. And that was my first. It was New- about? It was about Google. Mm-hmm. It was an adventure story. Uh, I went uh, with the Google Maps team on a trip down the Grand Canyon because they were putting the Grand Canyon inside of Street View. Right. And, of course, they got lost. They got yeah. lost yeah. on the way. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, you know, that, that, um, that article got me noticed by mm-hmm. kind of the book editors and mm-hmm. and that led directly to this book. So
0: why did you want to do so you decided to do an oral history meaning I see I love oral histories like Vanity Fair does them all the time lots of magazines do them where you go to the principals and then they tell stories essentially and they're they're very readable most of the time they so talk about why you decided to go this route rather than do a I I've, I've interviewed people who have done histories of Silicon Valley either very historical like academics or you know there's a million journalists who do like the history of Google the history of Uber even though I can't believe people are doing stories and books on Uber right now. It's a yeah. little early, but you know. And then there's long time histories like like Walter Isaacson does on Leonardo da Vinci or whoever. Um, so we'll talk about why you want to do the oral history. I like the idea of it, but in print because a lot of people do. You know, we do this the podcast. But what was the thinking behind it?
1: Yeah, the oral history is like a it's a very obscure form that I fell in love with mm-hmm. when I was a magazine writer and editor. Uh, you know, I did an oral history of the space tourism, and I interviewed mm-hmm. every billionaire who went to the International Space Station, and I just said, okay, just tell me what you did on your summer right. vacation. Right. And they all have the same story. It's like, you know, I prepared, I went up, I went down, right. you know, it was super cool. And then what you do is you take those transcripts and you cut them mm-hmm. just like you would cut film,
0: right? and right. you
1: and splice them together. So it's almost like... It feels very much like watching a documentary. You have that you are there kind of feeling, and that's what I wanted to do. That came out really well, Mm -hmm. and that's what I wanted to do for Silicon Valley because I was just tired of everybody's take Take. on Silicon Valley. Take takes yeah the quick take, take the, the hot take. take it's just the it's just the, the long death take death of journalism <laughs> like you know what 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 the web has taught us is everybody has an opinion
0: right they do and you know the Some rest of, the of, of that that quote, you know
1: yeah. like um so I just wanted to take myself out of the equation and right. give. Um, the readers, the stories that I heard growing up, right, right. in computer the tales camp, around the camp, right?
0: digital campfire. Exactly
1: the tales around the digital campfire in the you know in the server rooms. Mm-hmm. Later in the bar rooms. Right later than that. you know, on the playa at Burning Man. And Mm -hmm. and those stories were very, very, very different than the stories that I heard coming out of the mainstream media world in New York. Right. Completely different. That's because
0: it's anecdote, anecdote, example. You know, there's a a formula to it.
1: Well, there's also this kind of unvarnished...
0: Proving point. This
1: unvarnished thing. I wanted to hear... Right. You know, everybody has a, a perspective, but I thought the people who actually made... Silicon Valley. How do they see their own story? Mm-hmm. Well, because you know that the story is what motivates people. Right. Uh, how they see the arc of their own lives. Right. And so you know they're kind of running the culture and driving the culture now. Right. So where are they driving it to? Well, the way to answer that is to 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 ask them where they've been. So telling
0: their stories, which is always from their perspective, too. Like I Like, you know, when I was doing a book on AOL, I would interview seven people and come up with eight versions of a story. You know what I mean? Like, what happened? Um, so which is always interesting because they often conflict um, based on a person's recollections, essentially.
1: And the nice thing about an oral history is when you get those conflicts, <laughs> you just have one person telling it one way and the other person telling right. it the other way, and you intercut them, and you get this incredible kind of, like... 360 kind of view, right? I, I find it very compelling, right. and I hope the readers. So reader what does it do. does is
0: require you then to pick who you're going to talk to. And you yeah. said what the founders, what is this? The fa- let's see. Hackers, uh, hackers, founders, and freaks, which could be just one person, really. Um, talk about how you decide it, because that is an editorial decision of who you're going to talk to. Is it just, I'll talk to anybody, uh, Adam, or what? I'm, I'll talk to anyone, Kara, so
1: of course I'll talk to anyone. So how
0: did you decide though? Because you had to like, there's people that are that count and people who don't, you know what I mean?
1: It's interesting. You know, I picked kind of the magic moments. Mm -hmm. Okay, those were my editorial decisions. Right.
0: Okay. So name them, your magic moments.
1: Well, the book starts at uh, kind of the birth of uh, the PC Mm -hmm. live on stage in 1968 Mm -hmm. in a very famous demo. Mm -hmm. And then it ends at a very famous funeral. You're in Palo Alto. You're watching Steve Jobs be put into the ground. Mm -hmm. And I just said, well, who was actually there? Right. You know? At each of these. At each of these. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it was like the people who were actually on the stage, Mm -hmm. who actually did the thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was the people who were... Just there, just witnesses like, you know, someone's secretary or a young intern. Right. And often Mm -hmm. they had the most kind of interesting, unfiltered, real-seeming stories. Right. Right. So uh, you
0: can say Steve Jobs' sister or someone like that. Yeah.
1: So you get both, and and really these chapters, you know, if you're going to do one of these moments. You really don't want more than eight or ten voices, or else it just gets confusing. To right, the in reader. each of the
0: moments. In each of the moments. Each of the moments.
1: And what's interesting is that the same names keep reappearing. Absolutely. You know that the names of the companies change, but you 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 recognize the names of the people from mm-hmm. prior chapters, and so there really is a continuity. Now you taped all these,
0: correct? You taped. Yes, them. I did. So that's a lot of tape. How many hours of tape?
1: Hundreds. I had. On the order of 10 million words of transcript. Oh, my God. So, printed out, that's from here to through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I boiled that down to 185,000 words, so right. 500 pages. Right. So. It was a huge kind of job.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and to, which is a take, like how what you pick and choose among the, all those people. Now, did you provide all those? Are you going to publish all the interviews? Nope. Nope. Just the ones you pick.
1: I mean, they are they are published. They're in right. the book called Valley right, of Genius. Right, but I mean all of it. Yeah, it'll go to Stanford.
0: Go to Stanford if you could do these interviews. I think those are valuable. Years ago, I wanted to interview, uh, I wanted to take all our, do a bunch of interviews with all the founders of these various companies. At the time, they were the founders. Mm. And then give them to the Smithsonian. I try to convince the Smithsonian. I'm like, let's do these now because we'll have videos of like, Edison before he was Edison, yeah. Like, you know, Mark Andreessen at 1920 versus, yeah. and then do him later, like you know, do an interview later.
1: And there are some archives, Smithsonian has a small yeah, but a real archive. interview. I yeah. mean,
0: like re- anyway, anyway. So let's so let's talk about so these moments. So tell me why you started with the where the PC. Explain your thinking of, and then go through some of the major people you interviewed and and lesser people you interviewed. So
1: why I started with
0: yeah, at the PC. This is in this yeah. Is the IBM so PC.
1: Silicon Valley was named after the silicon of the. Semiconductor industry. Mm-hmm. It goes back, you know, very far. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was a—Silicon Valley was basically a war machine that was uh, developing chips for rockets, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and that story— has been really well told by Michael Malone and Mm -hmm. other people. I wanted to do really the start of the modern Silicon Valley. So I started in 68 because this is really the prehistory of the PC revolution Mm -hmm. where the the microchip gets into the hands of kind of the people, if you were, Mm -hmm. where smart young kids figure out that, hey, they can actually build computers too. And you get Atari and you get Apple and really, Atari is the first modern company with uh, a consumer product that's directly influencing the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It's not make, You know, we're not making components anymore in Silicon Valley. So I wanted to start there because I think that's what the Silicon Valley of today is about. Right. So the first third is the intertwined stories of Atari, mm-hmm. Xerox Park, mm-hmm. a very famous R and D outfit. From whence
0: many things came.
1: From whence kind of everything came, Mm -hmm. and Apple. Mm -hmm. And that's the first third of the book. Mm -hmm. So the first third ends at about 84. Then we have this kind of weird interregnum where Microsoft – had a long shadow, and mm-hmm. really there wasn't much of a business story in San Francisco. No. So, 94 to, uh, oh, sorry, 84 to 95 with, yes, the,
0: 95.
1: with the big Netscape. boom of the Netscape IPO. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, although, was not much of a business story, it was an incredible oh, yeah. cultural story yes. going on.
0: Kara entered the picture in 91, 92. There you that go. That when it was
1: starting. Um, AOL and all the others. Yeah, all the others. So then it's uh, 95 to almost the present day Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know. all
0: internet. internet, All internet. And and mobile.
1: Yes, it ends kind of with the big bang of the iPhone and the smartphone. Which was
0: 94. No, 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 2004. 2004. Right, yeah. So, all right, so talk about who you wanted to talk, who you talked to, some of the people. Now, we're going to play a clip here from Steve Wozniak talking about Steve Jobs. Can you set it up for us?
1: The most astonishing thing I found out when I interviewed Waz,
0: yeah, who's a talker, who's
1: a who's a great talker, a great yeah. guy and beloved in the valley, really, truly, was I said, "Hey, so, uh, you know, tell me about the the, the uh, memorial service," mm-hmm. and he said, "Oh, I didn't go." Mm. And I was like, "What do you What do you mean, That's Waz? You didn't yeah. go?" Yeah. You know, I was actually shocked. You, mm-hmm. you no. are not surprised. And he was like, oh, you know, I was on a plane to Europe, and I was like, my <laughs> God, you yeah, know? And and so, um, I think that sets this quote up nicely, actually. All right, let's play it. Look, I came
0: up with the product that made Apple. Keep in mind, if Steve Jobs had started without me, where would he have gone? He tried to make four computers with millions of dollars in his life, and they all failed. The Apple III, for marketing reasons, it, And the Lisa, because Steve didn't understand costs, the Macintosh, which wasn't really a computer and was going to lead to big problems later on,
1: and the next.
0: All right. So that's not very kind.
1: Well, let's uh, put things in perspective. I, okay. you know, universally,
0: perhaps accurate, but not kind.
1: It's an interesting perspective, and it's it's the kind of perspective you only get by going back to the That's sources, right? right. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and then
0: the quote like that t- tends to drop out of things, c- interviews, because you're like, oh, he's just sour grapes because everything else was pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, Steve Jobs had his virtues, but mm-hmm. um, you know, being a nice guy wasn't one of them. Yeah. And I kind of see this as you know, was, you know, finally standing up for himself. Uh, He had to do it um, after Jobs died, but we we know what a kind of domineering personality Jobs was. Right. Uh, Every friend he had or or person he was intimate with as a young man— um, he burned mm-hmm. very badly when he was
0: younger, yeah when he was For younger,
1: sure. and the question is how much did he change and of course, there 's a huge debate about yeah. that yeah. I think he changed um, a lot, I do too in fact, one of the main kind of arcs through this is about job 's spiritual journey, which mm-hmm. I think is often poo pooed especially by the no, new I York think it was media very but um, because they think oh that 's just some woo woo thing you know. It wasn't to Jobs. I think that the going to India, the taking the, of the LSD when he was a young man mm-hmm. and um, was was the most important. It was kind of the lodestone of his, mm-hmm. or the North Star, right. the lodestone that, that he built his life around it in a mm-hmm. sense. And I have these amazing stories of, um, from the funeral itself and the memorial service. Um, and his deathbed, about you know, he was surrounded by pictures of uh, Neem Karoli, the the guru that he went searching for, mm-hmm. as he died. And you know, there's this incredible rumor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that he took a massive dose of LSD to die. Oh, interesting. I,
0: don't know, I, I, know.
1: I thought I knew the Apple no. story. I've been an Apple fanboy since right. the Apple II. I've mm-hmm. seen all the movies. I've read all the books. Right. And that was just a shocker to me. I thought, I thought the Apple story would be just easy. Mm-hmm. I put in the basics and right. move on to the rest, right? right. Um, you know, a I thought everything that could have been said about Jobs has right. been said. His but sister
0: wrote a beautiful piece about his dying. I yes. It was one of the most beautiful pieces it about was, the moment of it, his death.
1: It was absolutely and beautiful. And she read it at his funeral. Right? And she read it at his funeral. Right. And I asked this person who actually knew Jobs through this mm-hmm. entire time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the per- and I said, well, prove it to me. How did he, you know, mm-hmm. did you give him LSD? Mm-hmm. And, and he or she said, no, but. You heard what his sister said. And I was like, Of course I did, yeah. you know. And then he uh, um, this person said to me, Well what were his final words? Oh wow, I think it was Oh wow. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh wow. hmm And then he was like I rest my case. Oh, that's not a resting case. And I was like, case, I was like, it's not a resting. That is kind g-. of a big deal. I, I, I was skeptical, but I decided that I'd follow this thread. Yeah. And I followed it until I got to the guy mm-hmm. who almost certainly gave Jobs his first dose of LSD. Right.
0: Right, which is back now. We just had Michael Pollan on talking about it. It's it's a whole new thing, which especially is, in Silicon Valley, which is interesting. Yeah, but you Jobs know, Jobs was ahead of his time. Yeah, Jobs
1: had talked about it in basically every phase of his career. Yeah. Um, sometimes even yeah. publicly.
0: I, I think I can't like go to a meeting without someone offering me something, some microdosing yes. these days. It's, <laughs> it's everywhere. Like,
1: LSD really is everywhere. Not just LSD,
0: mushrooms, and but, ketamine, yeah. and, and ayahuasca. Someone recently was like, with oh, me. I'm like, never in this lifetime will I be doing any kind of psychedelic drugs with you. In any case, um, when we get back, we're going to take, we moved somewhere to psychedelic mm-hmm. drugs. When we get back, we're talking to Adam Fisher. He has a book about the history of Silicon Valley. We're going to talk about the technology uh, and right. not the drugs right now. Um, it's called Valley of Genius, The Unsend History of Silicon Valley, as told by the hackers, founders, and freaks who made it boom. Uh, When we get back, we'll talk more about what he thought were the most important uh, parts of it. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Sure. Your bank or PayPal can get your money from A to B, but that transfer will cost you more than it should. A lot more. That's the old way of doing things. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to send money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise was founded by two friends, Tavit and Christo, who were frustrated by their banks' bad exchange rates and high fees. They wondered, what if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than two million people use TransferWise. People sending money home, businesses paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid. The list goes on. TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee. So it'll put some extra money in your pocket for more important things. No one has ever said it's important that my bank gets some extra money. Test it out for free at TransferWise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's TransferWise.com slash podcast. It's the wise way to send money. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media, with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week?
2: This week I talked to Bo Burnham. Um, who's
0: sometimes described as a YouTube comedian or a stand-up. He's made a pretty amazing movie called Eighth Grade, which is not funny um, for the most part. It is about an eighth grade girl, and it is a sort of astonishing sort of presentation of what modern life is like for an eighth grader uh, in 2018. Um, You should go watch that movie, and then you should listen to me talk
1: to Bo Burnham about it. Um, He's a pretty intense and trippy and smart guy
0: sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're here with Adam Fisher. His new book is called Valley of Genius, the Uncensored History of Silicon Valley, as told by the hackers, founders, and freaks who made it boom. So the first part is about the the birth of the PC, which was critical to everything, and that includes a lot of Apple jobs, IBM, obviously. Talk about some of the people you encountered during those and what you thought were were the most profound technology issues during this time.
1: In this first period? Yes, this first
0: period, and then moving into the second.
1: Well, you know, Alan Kay really is a genius. Mm -hmm. It's called Valley of Genius, and everybody's super high IQ I Mm -hmm. talk to, but, uh, you know, I was blown away by Alan Kay. Alan Kay was critical. Was critical, and...
0: Explain who he was and
1: why. So, Alan Kay is interesting. He is a technologist, and he was... um, he wasn't technically the head, but he was one of the main guys of at Xerox Park, which mm-hmm. was the main R and D shop in the Valley right. back in the day. Right. And he wanted to build um, a computer for kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And. Um, at the time the computers were well they were just out of the punch card era so they were in the command line thing so he mm-hmm. said no what you need is pictures uh, uh a graphical user interface and and a mouse you know and uh, he adopted the mouse from someone else but he built you know the desktop that we're familiar with today he was mm-hmm. the first guy it was called the alto mm-hmm. it was a small run research kind of a project. And Steve Jobs famously uh, saw it and just kind of copied it wholesale for the Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Microsoft copied it. Right. And, and so he is responsible for, you know, what a computer looks like today. So that was a huge breakthrough, the I- interface right. breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Then the other side is kind of a little more complicated, um, but it's on the chip level. It's Uh, you know, the Alto used a a chip just to control the keyboard, and it was a 6502. Mm -hmm. And it was just a little thing that pushed information back and bits, back and forth from the keyboard to the central processor. Well, Woz looked at it and said, no, I can make a whole computer out of this. Mm -hmm. Not only that, he figured out how to turn it into a color computer Mm -hmm. by just... um, by an incredibly clever, um, incredibly cheap um, method that was then copied everywhere, where he he you know made the the bits going to the screen turn on and off mm-hmm. in the same kind of um, wavelengths that the colors would turn on and off. Right. And uh, you know that's why that's why the Apple II logo is in color. Mm-hmm. That was the big Which breakthrough.
0: Mind blowing thing.
1: It was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. He did a similar thing with the disk controller. There's stories of people looking under the desk to try to find out where this this technology was. So he he was a real the real technical genius of the time, and he is self taught. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, so those were the. The, the two critical things in that period that really, I think, mattered yeah, to today. No, you're going to read
0: something from that period at this time?
1: I was going to read something from my introduction.
0: All right. Well, go ahead. Go for it.
1: All right. Okay. In the Silicon Valley where I'm from, the stories were almost never about money. There were tales about resistance, heroism, and struggle. Yarns about the creation of something out of nothing— and the daring do required to pull such a feat off. That's still true, at least in the Silicon Valley I know. Those were the stories that got me excited, and they still do. I am not saying that there isn't an economic story to be told. In fact, I think what we're witnessing is the greatest transition since the Industrial Revolution. A new economy, the informational economy, is being created. And at the center of that new economic order will be Silicon Valley. And if that's not the business story of the century, what is? Still, the bigger question, in my humble opinion, is how that transformation will transform us. We begin to see the answer in the culture that's being created in Silicon Valley now. It's future obsessed and forward thinking, it's technical and quantitative, it's market oriented. It's simultaneously practical and utopian. It's brainy, even in its humor. In short, it's a nerd culture. And, of course, there have been nerds since time immemorial. Leonardo da Vinci was a nerd. Ben Franklin was a nerd. Albert Einstein was the quintessential nerd. But the new thing is that the nerd culture is becoming the popular culture. Mm -hmm. Evidence for that idea, once grokked, is everywhere. Exhibit A— The Big Bang Theory, a show by, for, and about nerds, is one of the highest-rated and longest-running television sitcoms ever. Exhibit B, The Martian's unlikely journey from self-published NASA fan fiction to blockbuster. Exhibit C, the fact that XKCD, a web-based comic devoted to, quote, romance, sarcasm, math, and language has any audience at all. Even more astonishing, at least to me, is that this new popular culture is a youth culture. The kids who are searching for an exciting life no longer want to be rock stars or rap stars, but rather Silicon Valley-style tech stars. They want to be Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. As readers will discover, Technology entrepreneurs have never made particularly good role models. Atari founder Nolan Bushnell essentially invented the role of the 20-something Silicon Valley CEO almost a half century ago. And he may have been the baddest bad boy that the Valley has ever seen. His protege, Steve Jobs, was not much better. At the same time, this new nerd culture is the best possible news for our collective future, given the awesome challenges ahead. Soon there will be 9 billion people crowding this warming planet, and each one will come equipped with a supercomputer in their pocket. So I'm optimistic, bullish even. Who better to inherit the Earth at a time of crisis than a generation obsessed with science and engineering? It's pretty clear where this new nerd culture came from. It came from the same place that the money did, Silicon Valley. And what is a culture? There is no mystery here either. A culture is simply the stories that define a people, a place. It's the stories we tell each other to make sense of ourselves, where we came from, and where we are going.
0: All right. I'm going to push back on all of that because okay, I think it's great. not a good culture at all. I think it's an awful culture. But let's talk about the beginning let's talk. of it. Let's I'd love to talk it. Yeah, about because that. Because we're going to do that in the next section because uh, the Internet culture, I think, does display what went really awry with all of this. But it did start with this resistance. So the first part of the book is about resistance, the resistance that it was counterculture, that it was pushing back against the memes, business memes of the time, mm-hmm. essentially. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the people had that mentality, Correct. Oh yeah, yeah. Like this get is, out!
1: It's a subculture. It's an offshoot of the counterculture.
0: Mm-hmm. And what companies is that reflect? In Apple, all, all of them really. Atari
1: Pretty, as Atari. well.
0: Yeah, with Nolan. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: I mean, even Xerox Park famously mm-hmm. was countercultural. They sat right. on beanbag chairs. They, you know, they smoked pot. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go back before that with Engelbart. Uh, he was heavily involved in. Uh, so
0: resistance really was the. The, what is it what would you call it it's not really resistance how would you just besides counterculture there's more describe that more
1: you know i think it's um i think it's wrong to say that the counterculture and the geek culture were the same thing mm-hmm. but they were kind of allied cultures mm-hmm. and um parallel cultures in right. a way so they just had a different idea of you know how the world was changing and how to change the world.
0: Right. And then how how did that manifest? What do you think the key inventions that came up during this early period?
1: Well, clearly it's the personal computer. Mm -hmm. There was a revolution that started in 68, it's the opening scene of the book, where Doug Engelbart famously showed a computer where you could type on it. Mm -hmm. That meant that the computer was waiting for the person. Mm-hmm. It was considered an outrageous waste of resources mm-hmm. just to wait for someone to press return. Right. But Doug Engelbart said, no, no, these, this is how it should be. Computers should be servants of humans.
0: Mm-hmm. Which was the concept. <laughs> That's we, with, which with, was a new concept at right. that point. Yeah, at that point, absolutely. And then let's go through the Microsoft period really quickly. So they. So this happened. Every, it was a huge boom. Apple was ascended, and then it wasn't. And Microsoft was. What happened there from your, your, your uh So, this world. is a
1: history of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Microsoft is not a Silicon right. Valley company. No.
0: It's in Seattle?
1: Yes. Um, so, what happened um, in that period was the rise of the cyber culture, mm-hmm. okay? And that is this kind of imagined connection between the psychedelic culture, which mm-hmm. was really getting— Long in the tooth, mm-hmm. and this new geek culture, um, which the kind of psychedelic culture kind of discovered and adopted, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a number we can talk about the well, we can talk about Wired, but mm-hmm. I think the best way to talk about it is through an almost forgotten company called VPL, mm-hmm. which was Jaron Lanier's mm-hmm. virtual reality. Jaron's new book out too. Yes, yeah. Jaron Lanier's virtual reality company. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was literally built on a kitchen table. They had the computers running in his fridge to keep them cool. Mm -hmm. And they built this system, which they thought actually would be a new graphical user interface for programming. Mm -hmm. Like beyond the desktop, well, you'd have a room that you're actually inside. You Mm -hmm. don't just have a little hand that you point with Mm that, you know, you actually point with your real hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And you'd have these goggles and gloves, everything we're familiar with. And people stepped in there and they said, oh this this is not a pr- programming this is not an interface. this is a new reality. this is a, a, like a, like a psychedelic experience that that can 't be, be outlawed right, yeah. and there, and you know, I keep coming back to this, but this was the Bay Area culture, this psychedelic mm-hmm. experience um, and, and this was seen as the next phase of that, and literally. Um, Terrence McKenna, the great kind of mushroom proselytizer, was heavily involved uh, proselytizing for virtual reality and its virtues. Um, Timothy Leary was kind of best friends at the time Mm -hmm. with Jaron Lanier, Mm -hmm. uh, um, and was always, you know, talking about virtual reality and became a tiny little VR kind of entrepreneur himself. Mm -hmm. And of course. This all was preposterous and it collapsed, but it catalyzed, you know, this thing called the the technoculture, which mm-hmm. was, you know, picked up by Mondo 2000 and then kind of turned into a, a, a more palatable national-type culture by Wired. And then I think, you know, we're seeing the technoculture kind of writ large today. Mm-hmm. But But the origins was in this so-called fallow period. Right. And that's that's what this middle period uh, in Silicon Valley right. and in this book is about.
0: Right. Had, to, had they seen something gone awry or it was just the next thing they were invented with the first part of the—
1: It was the awakening to of the geeks to the <laughs> fact that what they created is not a bunch of tools mm-hmm. like Stuart Brand right. kind of wanted. Right. But really that they created—those that those tools um, that they created— created them, mm-hmm. right? So, there was this weird feedback loop. The, the most obvious is uh, desktop publishing, which came right out of the Macintosh, right? right? Mm-hmm. So, with de- desktop publishing, you could create something that looked like a mainstream magazine, mm-hmm. and you could manipulate pictures and, you know... Move them around. Move them around, and you could create something that looked very... Slick. It wasn't this like, kind of bricolage, this like mm-hmm. collage type thing that maybe the whole catalog had. Mm-hmm. And so they imagined this kind of s- cyberspace techno culture that they took right out of science fiction and their kind of, you know, drug-fueled imaginations mm-hmm. and then made it real by making a magazine about it. Mm-hmm. Mondo, you know, and then everybody said, oh, yeah, that's who I am. And they started like being that. And so it literally created itself. Right. And that's what the techno culture is. This is the moment when the technology starts driving the culture. And that's we're seeing kind of. uh, All right. When we that get back, now. we're going to talk
0: about where we are now, and yeah. we're going to we are going to listen to um, um, it, it. Sort of was this more go-go culture with the internet and the money and everything. Oh else. We my about. We'll play a clip from Biz Stone about startup funding and the internet part. We're here with Adam Fisher, the author of Valley of Genius. We're going to take another break now, and we'll be back in a second. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. With the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You're being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information. That's why I decided to take my privacy back by using ExpressVPN expressvpn has easy to use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer phone and tablet turning on expressvpn protection takes just one click expressvpn secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public ip address protecting yourself with expressvpn costs less than seven dollars per month expressvpn is rated the number one vpn service by tech radar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your online activity today, and find out how you can get three free months at ExpressVPN.com/decode. That's E X slash E S SVPN.com/decode for three months free with a one-year package. Visit ExpressVPN.com/decode to learn more. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week we answer your questions about consumer tech and the week's news. This week I talked to Christo Wilson and David Chaffness from Northeastern University. Christo and Dave, what did we talk about?
1: Well, we discussed that most apps aren't watching you, but there's a couple that are, are actually just recording everything and sending it to third parties.
2: You yeah, have the fear that your app is listening to you all the time or that it's watching you via the camera, we can't say that's true for most apps. But we did find some other behavior in terms of them watching what you do on the screen that in some sense might be even more dangerous.
0: Yes, these are two professors who largely debunk the conspiracy theory online that your phone is always listening to you for ad purposes. Anyway, you can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Or- or wherever you listen to podcasts that's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Adam Fisher. He's written an oral history of Silicon Valley called The Valley of Genius, The Uncensored History of Silicon Valley. Um, so talk about uh, where we how we got to here now. Um, because, I, I, you know, you would say that this— So, we had this techniculture that everyone started to pay attention to, but I think it, they really started to pay attention when the money showed up.
1: The money the is mo- everything. Which was the Internet. Follow the money. Right. That's the journalistic golden right. rule. It's not that Jobs
0: and Gates were not rich, but this was a whole other thing where you just could come out here. You know, I remember, maybe it was Wired, Go West, Young Man, Like was the idea of coming out here and becoming a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a whole other level of, of what went on. And also the infection of the internet into everyone's lives via the mobile phone and um, and the uses of it, um, which led to Facebook and everything else. So talk a little bit about that part of the book.
1: Well, I mean... Virtually every figure I talked to talked about the money and it's it's kind of pernicious, corrosive effects, corrosive effects, and and we're all they were all worried to a person that um, the money culture would overwhelm this kind of uh, creator m- maker culture that right. is at the core of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Silicon Valley still actually makes things, but. Um, Less and less. I mean, you know, we had an economy that was based on making things, first making chips and then um, computers and then making bits of software. And then um, at some point, we started getting everything for free, mm-hmm. in quotes, free. Right. And it stopped being an economy that made things. It became an Economy where people made money by extracting things mm-hmm. by mining da- data, so right. it, it flipped from a making economy to an extraction economy, and we have all the dysfunction that uh, you would see in um, you know in a mining site in the third world you know mm-hmm. the, the mining economies. Um, Extraction economies are kind of corrupt economies because, you know, one person or one company ends up controlling everything. Which is where we are. Which is kind of where we're headed. I mean, I I do think the history of Silicon Valley shows that there's always some young idealistic people somewhere who are railing against the machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Often they're being uh, given a lot of support and money by the the, the older generation who who recognizes how important this is, and um, they're trying to kind of destroy it. And so, you know, I think, I think, you know, hopefully, that kind of monopoly uh, economy that we see is going to be overturned Mm-mm. as well.
0: Mm, there's not a bit of resistance in this group of people. I don't think. I don't. I don't see it. I think there's a lot of talking about it, but there's not a lot of living it. Um, I, some of the st- earlier stuff I think was bullshit too, by the way. It was like just like any counterculture thing. It's, it's very twee and it's, con- you know what I mean? Like and it's change and it's a lot about middle class white kids like raging in some way. But here I don't see any commitment to real social justice or change or anything else.
1: Well, you know how it's going to ch- – the future is beyond the scope of the book. Mm-hmm. I wrote a history, okay? Right, got it. So I don't know. I right. I can say – all I can say is, in the past, Silicon Valley has overturned these kind of monopolistic mm-hmm. things in the past. And I have hope that they'll the f- do it again. That they'll do it again. Right. And, uh, but no one can see the future. You can't, I can't. Right. The best you can do is kind of look in that rearview mirror as you're driving into the void, okay. and that's what this book All is. All right, Let's
0: start with this clip from Biz Stone, who was an early uh, Twitter founder, and then left the company later, but uh, talking about funding, because I think it did become about the money.
2: Only in Silicon Valley can you be like, yeah, we would like $10 million, and we'll sell you a percentage of our theoretical company that will, may one day have lots of profits, And if we lose all of the money, we don't have to give it back to you. um, And maybe we'll start something else. And what crazy world does something like that exist? Like, wait, you can just blow the money and then you don't know what back, just wash your hands clean, done. Sorry about that. Sorry, spent all your money. Oh, well, I mean, it's just crazy. And not only that, here's, here's another scenario. Here's what some people do. They say we need $25 million, but you know, just so we can stay focused, my co-founder and I each need $3 million of that money and, and in our bank accounts so that we don't have to you know, worry about bills and that we can really focus, okay? And then they blow the money, that, and they say, oh, well, that didn't work out, but we're still keeping the $3 million each, so now we're rich. What the hell? That is crazy. That... So it's a crazy world. This is like some kind of nut place place <laughs> where you can do that kind of stuff. What the hell? I mean, look,
1: I, I st- deliberately stayed away from talking to bankers and financiers and yeah, VCs. Yeah, that's I thought, a good thing. Um, because they're the helping profession, supposedly. Right. They're mm-hmm. like the PR people. Yeah. They, they need You need to have them, but they're not the core of the culture. Right. And the, the core people in the culture all said things like that. They're very worried, very upset that what made Silicon Valley great, it was being extinguished mm-hmm. by the money. Mm-hmm. And so— And you see a lot of nostalgia for how it is. And yeah, nostalgia is always a little bullshit, but it's important to see how they see themselves because I think... Right,
0: absolutely. So why do they see themselves like this? Because first of all, they were never part of that first culture. And second of all, they built this culture. The lack of responsibility is fascinating to me. Like, I can't believe this happened from all of them. And when they were the creators of what happened, essentially. Sort of a Peter pan kind of thing. Like, oh, no, there's a big mess in the middle of the room. How did that get there?
1: Well, you know, I I don't think—I think that's a, the broad brush and, and true for some, but not all. I mean, uh, the well, guy— Talk who, about who you thought was really interesting in this period. Well, I think Ev Williams is really interesting, you Certainly. know. He's he the, a, one of the
0: founders of Twitter also.
1: Yeah, and Twitter, you know, it made a huge mess, arguably made things worse, mm-hmm. Um And so what has he done? Mm -hmm. He's very quietly kind of beavered away to create kind of an anti-Twitter. It's uh, Medium, which is his new company, Mm -hmm. is long form instead of short form. Mm -hmm. It's... It's uh, subscriptions supported, not ad supported. Mm-hmm. It actually has curation. It actually pays writers. Mm-hmm. Instead of just a like, a single like, there's like a, a clapping system where it can be metered and presumably monetized, i.e., uh, you know, you give people who... Uh, you like money. You know, you give those people money. And so is it as big as Twitter? No. But is he... Uh, Trying to fix, is he in version 2.0 the problems that were created by social media 1.0? I, I think he is, and I think he's sincere about it. Mm-hmm. Other people I think might be less sincere, but it's still so early in this, this game.
0: So, where do you, this started, where are you putting this era started? It would be Netscape, right? Mark Andreessen, Netscape.
1: This new money area? Absolutely, Netscape. But of course, there have been ups and downs and booms and busts, Mm -hmm. as you well know. Right,
0: 2001.
1: 2001, boom. 2009, yeah. Yeah, 2008. And
0: then, how important is Facebook in this equation, in this section? Or is that.
1: I have a chapter on Facebook. So I, talk about that. I have two chapters on Google, so...
0: So talk about both those two companies. So they're, they're pretty much the most important companies, have been the most important companies. Apple has continued throughout mm-hmm. to remain a powerful and important company, but really the tone was set by Google and then continued by Facebook.
1: So Facebook, the most interesting thing I came across was this patent that is supposed to exist, uh, and it, they, they, I was told, they, were, they patented a keg, very early on. And I was like and it had a system where if you went to the keg and poured yourself a beer, it would say, "Hey, Adam," it say to all the the people around send a message, "Hey, Adam Fisher is at the keg. Why don't you join him?" Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by this, uh, not because of the technology, mm-hmm. although it may be the re- the start of their face recognition technology mm-hmm. actually, but I was fascinated that this this tiny little startup was building kegs instead of a social media platform. Mm-hmm. Why was that? So I started asking around. And really, it turned out that beer was as fundamental to early Facebook culture as, any, as it is to any fraternity mm-hmm. on any campus in the nation. Right. For example, and this is my favorite Facebook story, there was um, you know, the, the typical people would roll into early Facebook at noon, Often in their pajamas, hack, mm-hmm. go out to dinner and beers at five, and you know, basically drink all night until they collapsed. But there was one guy who was tasked with getting to the um, door at nine a.m. every morning, and that's because these guys who could build a social hackers, all of them, um, these guys couldn't figure out how to reprogram the automatic lock mm-hmm. on the door. <laughs> <laughs> and so they actually had to have a person there as it unclunked um, uh, so that no one would come in and steal all the computers. And so mm-hmm. it would, at nine, it would unclunk, mm-hmm. unlock, and he'd push open the door. And he said, you know, every time I'd just be pushing through a pile of beer cans, just mm-hmm. sweeping them away. And there'd mm-hmm. be people kind of passed out mm-hmm. on the couch and stuff. So mm-hmm. it really was a frat culture, which makes sense. I mean, these these guys were sophomores who right. were running the company. So now? So we see the echoes of that, you know. They, they are, you know, trying to grow up, and we will see if they succeed. On uh, our dime, how nice. On our dime. Yeah. That said, all these companies' early days were pretty wild. Yes. I mean, the, the big surprise Microsoft. really is that... Um, you know, uh, how much fun people were having, mm-hmm. you know, and, and these are basically kids in the act of creation. Right. Um, and, you know, that's why I talk about a youth culture, and it's really mm-hmm. an intergenerational youth culture where the older generation often helps the younger generation. Right. Andy Hertzfeld's right. perfect example. Yeah,
0: from Apple, from General Magic, from exactly. lots of places.
1: Really, there's only, like, 50 super important names mm-hmm. that they just that kind of invented everything and they just reappear and reappear mm-hmm. and it's uh, uh, you know first as kids and then as kind of mentors to the next generation yeah. of like kind of Unmanageable, young Yeah, General Magic
0: is about movies about to come out about it. It, it, That was one of the fonts of those. Everybody was there. Everyone
1: was there, and everybody who's in that movie is in my General Magic chapter. In fact, we work pretty closely together. And General
0: Magic was this company that was creating basically an iPhone way before or something. They had
1: a working equivalent of an iPhone. They did. In 95, I think it was. All
0: the concepts were there. I have it in my garage.
1: I do, too. And, you know, if you look at it, it, it actually has Everything. the same pixel si- resolution. Yeah. It has the it's same, the same, thing. same um, keyboard on screen. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. it, it is fascinating. Same people. And so it's, it's, the same, it's the same people.
0: Well, Wikimedia was there. Yeah. There was a, um, there was a lot of who started eBay. So let's finish up talking about Google. Let's finish up. So how how important from your perspective did they they also they created the great wealth. The I think that was the first company that really
1: they pulled us out of that trough that we mm-hmm. fell into after Which was started 9-11. in 11. Yeah, yeah who started. And that one of their great advantages in retrospect that they could just hire everybody for cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, I, 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 I'm a Gmail guy. I love Google. I was there at Wired when all this was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I knew it. But I, um, I came across this photograph, and it showed—it um, was from a long time ago. And it showed uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the two co-founders, at Burning Man, half naked, covered in dust in front of their pup tent um, and they were both in between them was a a guy that they were both embracing who is like in full kind of raver regalia and I was like who the heck is that guy and I did some research it's this guy this rarely acknowledged kind of third founder Mm -hmm. of Google Scott Hassan Hmm. and I tracked him down and oh my god did he have some amazing stories to tell. so he was uh there when Larry Page was building. So Larry Page was a PhD student in Stanford and his big idea was he was going to get a PhD by studying the web, but in in order to study the web he had to capture the web, right? Mm-hmm. He had to download the whole thing. You could you could still kind of do that back mm-hmm. then. So he wrote this piece of code called the spider right. which which would suck it all down into a stack of hard drives in his uh in his, like, grad student office. And um, the code he wrote in Scott Hassan's estimation was absolutely pathetic Mm -hmm. because it was, yes, downloading the web, but it was downloading it slower than the web itself was expanding. Mm -hmm. So by definition... He'd never catch up. He would never catch up. And so just as kind of an exploit or a joke... Hassan broke into the office one over one weekend, uh, threw out all of Larry's code, and wrote the program his own way. Mm-hmm. And it was many, many thousands of times faster mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, allowed Larry to download it and then make his great uh, kind of breakthrough page rank. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was Scott Hassan, in Scott's telling at least, which is in the book, Um, that was the guy who said, let's make a search engine. Mm -hmm. And, And Larry and Sergey were like, no, no, it's too hard. It's not research. And he was like, no, it's easy. I've done it before. And he he and Sergey actually, you know, were the ones who turned it into a search engine. Where is Scott Hassan? So Scott, the reason we don't know much about Mm -hmm. him is he got kind of tired, uh, I think, waiting around for those guys to start a company. Mm -hmm. And he went off when the web boom was really booming, and he made something like $20 million in 18 months. Mm -hmm. And I think then kind of came back and met those guys at Burning Man. You know, I think that may have been... The inspiration for Larry and Sergey to go try to make their own company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he, Scott Hassan is a billionaire. He's like an investor on, entrepreneur, but he's, mm-hmm. he's, his big thing is robots and he, you know, curing death and colonizing mars they and to selling that. I'm not, I'm mars get into and, that. you know like he is just oh, the most kind of like silicon valley character i i came across well perfect
0: um so last conclusion of this what what, what did you come away with you're hopeful obviously you think.
1: i am hopeful and i'm i'm not you know the the money story and the business story i find super depressing mm-hmm. you're this is your yeah gruel that you have to eat every day. (laughs) Um, But, you know, looking at it from a cultural angle, I really think, you know, this is the next global culture after rock and roll, then hip hop, and now kind of this geek culture. And I think that really is a good thing because, you know, uh, obviously we see the dysfunction, but it's really about science and being smart and making things. And I think that's what the world needs. I think what's
0: happened is it's been noisy and raging and insulting and it gives people tools to do their most base instincts and without thinking of the responsibility.
1: It's that, that too. It's that too. <laughs> I don't see anything else I don't disagree.
0: Give me one hope company right now.
1: You can't name It's one. not about companies. It's about culture, Cara. It's about culture.
0: Our culture is now screamy because of Twitter and Facebook and Google and the rest of them. We have it's too a, much information, not about, enough wisdom. It's
1: about people who don't want to study postmodern literary criticism like I did. Yeah. It's about Okay. People who want to yep. become an engineers yeah, they and build the, things. Yes, but they and, haven't
0: invented the next thing. They haven't invented the thing that's beautiful. They've invented all the things that are ugly. They've wow. been used, the tools have been used for ugliness more than they've been used for beauty. Although I like Chrissy Teigen. She's very funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, otherwise. In any case, we're going to disagree on that. But it was great talking to you. I'm sorry to leave it, Adam. I like your hopefulness, but I think these are incredibly... Uh, uh immature young men uh, and even when they're old lots of women in this book Yes, are. they're good. Okay, name me one that's right. One one important woman in this in this culture or person of color. Um I'm sorry to be remiss do You though. know
1: David Levitt? Person yes. of color. Yeah. He's incredibly yeah. interesting and important Absolutely. and represents all that's good and and is I building interesting stuff.
0: Yep, I would agree.
1: I think Brenda Laurel is the explain hope, who she is. Hopelessly overlooked, Brenda Laurel. So interesting. She has a theater background. She was a researcher at Atari Research, mm-hmm. which basically laid down all the kind of multimedia and even virtual reality mm-hmm. um, stuff we have uh, see today. And um, she, uh, you know, she she then did a couple companies and and retreated into academia, but. You know, those are, those are, that's kind of my fam- favorite woman yeah. in the book. Do you think
0: women and guy. people who have been overlooked in this valley of genius?
1: You know what? It's interesting. Um, I think, you know, as you know, um, and there was a recent book about this, you know, women were so- the software side of the technical culture for mm-hmm. decades, and then they got pushed out. And okay, so why did they get pushed out? It was, Something about the gaming culture. Mm. Weirdly, the first video game, you know, the first real successful video game was Pong, was a two-person game in bars. Mm -hmm. It was really like how you meet the opposite sex, you know. It was about interaction, and it was really about men and women kind of equally, you Mm -hmm. know. And somehow— the video game culture just went down this adolescent hole Mm -hmm. and created a lot of this dysfunction we see and kind of pushed out um, the, the, the women because, you know, Games are kind of the gateway drugs to computer science, right? And then into Silicon Valley. That's a very, that's the, a very, good, that's a very and, thing to say. And I do think, so I do think it's changing, not fast. Robotics
0: have a lot of women, and it's interesting. I've noticed, yeah, in robotics. Certain areas, it's it's not AI, but robotics. Yes, automation. AI
1: seems to be very Chinese, right. you know. So, um, you know, in an ethnic sense, I think Silicon Valley is a, a remarkable melting pot. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that there are way more women than you would think in the history of Silicon Valley uh, that are important. I, you know, Carol Bart is another mm-hmm. overlooked person, perhaps because her politics are on the mm-hmm. wrong side right now. But, you know, I, I have hope. I, I But, yes – Uh, To your point, there's absolutely not enough and there hasn't been enough for a long time. And I'm glad it's at the top of the agenda to change that. We'll we'll see.
0: All right, Adam, this is great talking to you. The book is called Valley of Genius, the uncensored history of Silicon Valley. It is an oral history. I urge you to read it. uh, And thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. This helps us discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other podcasts, Too Embarrassed to Ask and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.
1: Hi, Recode Decode listeners. I want to tell you about a new podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show. That's me, Arthur Brooks, and I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm making a new podcast with Vox Media. Now, as president of AEI, that's a Washington think tank, I see bitter disagreement all the time. And it's terrible. We need some way to disagree, not less, but better. So this is a series that looks at the art of disagreement. The first episode is out July 12th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most of all, subscribe right now.